Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is radical scale, the people, processes, and technology that will ensure our buildings meet the dramatic needs of our future. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Hello and welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I am absolutely delighted to be joined by our guest today, Fiona Cousins of Arup. Fiona has been at Arup for many years, where she is now a principal. Uh, she has had, I would say, an outsized influence in the green building community, both locally and globally, through her role, both as an exemplary engineer and sustainability professional, but also through her role supporting uh, nonprofit organizations. She was on the board of USGBC for many years, uh, central to the development of their strategic plan some years ago. Uh, Fiona was a board chair of what we now call Urban Green Council when I was on the staff there. Um, she has been uh, involved in the Beverly Willis Architecture Foundation and the Architectural League, uh, amongst many other um, um, activities uh, outside her uh, what draws a paycheck, um, uh, which has been uh, pretty amazing uh and influential uh, over the years, those roles. I've known and been hugely impressed by Fiona for many, many years, and I'm personally really excited to speak with her, and I'm sure everyone listening and feels the same. Fiona, welcome to Radio BX. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. You've spent your entire career uh, at Arup. Um, I'm curious, when you were studying engineering at Cambridge, did you know that you wanted to focus on buildings at that time? I actually knew before, so I went <laughs> from high school to Arup. So I did a pre-university year at Arup. So I'd already been working in the buildings industry for a year before I went to university. So by the time I got to studying engineering, I'd actually already been working for a year and had a great enthusiasm for buildings and the built environment and architects and architecture. So I absolutely knew that's where I wanted to end up. <laughs> I tested it out before I before I put the energy into the study. And when did your sort of professional focus turn to sustainability in particular? Was that very early as well? So when I came out of university, I did one thing where I did a, a dissertation about the land use and the built environment. Um, it wasn't a very good dissertation, but <laughs> it got me very interested in the planning of garden cities and some of these things with the precursor ideas to sustainability. When I did get um, into a job, the first thing that they put me into was actually doing energy modeling. So energy modeling and the analysis of highly glazed spaces, the overheating analysis of highly glazed spaces, or wow. how to stay cool in a greenhouse. And so I spent my first year or so being very heavily involved in the analytical tools around energy modeling. So you could say that that's when my, my focus started on sustainability, because I was really interested in the energy use of buildings, the way that you could naturally ventilate spaces, all of that was very much in my early technical development. But I think I really started moving towards it. Um, so that was, there was a key project. Um, there was a, a, the European Union put out a, an RFP that said, 
you can make any changes you like to these buildings as long as you can pay for it with energy savings. And at the time, there were mm. no real energy modeling programs, but we, together with uh, Mario Cuccinella, put together a, a plan for renovating these buildings paid for by energy savings. And I think that was kind of the first moment when I really started thinking about, okay, there's there's something here that you can really use to, to, change, um, to change the way that buildings are put together. So you were doing energy modeling before the software existed. To, yeah, to do it was, so. it was a set of slightly raw spreadsheets and a whole lot of very slow to compile um, Fortran programs. But right, yes, right. back in the day. Right. How early on did Arup sort of see this as promoting sustainability as an area of expertise as, as a professional uh, organization? I mean, I think the exam question for mechanical engineers, building services engineers is how do you make comfortable energy efficient spaces at a price that the owners can afford. So I think for a very long time, I thought it was just part of the job. And I think that what really made a difference for me was moving from London, where energy is very expensive, to San Francisco, where energy is not at all expensive. And um, at that point, we started talking to people about why it would be good to use out more outside air in buildings in San Francisco using more outside air in buildings is an energy saving technique it's a health technique it's a really good idea from a sustainability standpoint mm. um, and we started talking about this and I think it it was about 1996 and me and my my then boss Alistair McGregor started a roadshow we went to a lot of different architects we talked to a lot of different people about the design of buildings and I think at that point is when we started thinking in San Francisco about sustainability I think that the firm as a whole kind of caught up with this idea that this was something new and different as opposed to just part of the job in about 2000. Mm. Uh, And that was also the point at which we started realizing that it wasn't just mechanical engineering for buildings. It was also a lot of the civil work we do that the way that water flows across land, the way that um, uh, other kinds of water flow infrastructure work are all part of sustainability as is the use of materials, the quality of the environment for the people within it, the, energy, water, environment, materials, those things started mm. to sort of kind of come to the fore and make a make a, make a mix of things that perhaps build up sustainability in a more fully featured way than just energy efficiency. It must have been great to be at a place where they were working across so many different disciplines, because that's, of course, the dream of, of everyone really involved in sustainability at any kind of deep level is, is doing these things holistically and not just piecemeal and in different in one system of a building or project. Yeah. I mean, my, my worst nightmare as a mechanical engineer is walking into a room full of people and everybody says, oh, great, the sustainability person is here. We can solve all of the problems <laughs> now. And of course, you know, my, my experience both before those kinds of events have happened and, and just certainly st- since is that the best sustainable projects come out of the best design teams. Um, mm. And yeah. they come when you set the goals right, when you set the goals early and when everybody is really bought into them so that you know that that's what you're aiming for. They're, they're a part of the overall expression of the building. Um, you know, sustainability doesn't make architecture uh, yep. in and of itself. It, it, it isn't a design philosophy or it isn't a mode of, of being you have to put it together with other ideas about the function of the space and yeah. people who want to be in it and you know a bit of wow as well i have been that sustainability person before and i don't that usually they don't say oh he can solve all our problems <laughs> <laughs> so i'll disagree with you on that minor point <laughs> well um, so either solve them or create them right That's- right <laughs> right oh no he's here <laughs> yeah 
I'm also, uh, I mentioned previously how much work you've done supporting nonprofits uh, in this field with the USGBC, at Urban Green Council. Obviously, you lend your expertise and critical thinking to these organizations, but I'm curious what you feel you've learned or benefited from with these experiences. Yeah, so I think it, it, this has changed over time. So the first one I was really involved with was Urban Green Council mm. before it was called Urban Green. And there it was really just a question of being in the environment of other people who were really interested in sustainability and sustainability mm. goals. It was a kind of um, sense that you needed a tribe to belong to. And if that tribe wasn't in your project or wasn't in your office, you could get it by getting together with like-minded people. Um, so I think that was the first one I, I wanted to engage with other people who were interested in the kinds of things that I was interested in. I think other things become apparent pretty quickly once you start getting involved. I mean, it's, you can advocate for sustainability from within a firm and you should advocate for some, for sustainability from within a firm, but actually it's much, much more powerful if you can advocate as a group of firms or as a part of an industry. So I think this idea that you know, what you say has more weight, it isn't driven by a business notion, so it becomes much more reliable for the people mm. hearing it. Um, it has a, a variety of voices attached to it. So I think that, you know, if we want to get sustainability done, whatever that might mean, we need both the expertise of a very wide variety of people. As you say, integrated design is important, but we also need to understand how to get the politics to work and we need to understand how to convene. And some of those things are much better done outside of professional firms. So the second thing that I've really got out of this is that it's a place where you can actually begin to move the needle on sustainability in a in a broader context. Right. And then more personally, you know, that's the good stuff for the industry. Um, more personally, I think um, you know, sustainability consulting is very much about strategy development and it's good to have done some. So I've done some for some nonprofits. <laughs> I've also done them for clients. I'm pretty experienced at them at this at this point. But I think that well, the first one that I participated in was actually at Urban Green in very early days. Um, and then I think there's a, a sort of a gender expectation. Women get very cross with me when I say this, but um, a lot of women volunteer and they volunteer because they actually want to have the opportunity to do things that they can't get the opportunity to do in their jobs. Mm. And they also want to be fully qualified for jobs that come up, for roles that come up. And actually you can get a lot of experience and expertise by volunteering <laughs> to do work. So whether that's organising lectures or organizing events or other things there's a kind of certain project management strategy development I mean it's it's what you make of it but there are many roles that you can take in a volunteer organization that you can't take necessarily for work and that they they build they build resume so I think that that's that's another piece I would say that that's somewhat gendered it's not that the men don't learn things it's just that men sometimes don't think they need to um, <laughs> <laughs> rather than, than what it is and then the, sort of the last one on a on a personal basis, I think, you you know, I've made some good friends. I've built some good relationships and you get a different view of the industry. If you come outside, I think it's a it's a nonprofit involvement is a really good way of hearing what other people are thinking in the industry without being in sales mode or, you know, consultant mode or I'm the boss mode. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It, it takes away all of the other constructs around the way in which you relate to people and 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 gives it a much more collaborative edge, which I think is really helpful from the point of view of the firm. And, and it, I mean, it's just fun. Yeah. It's probably true that a lot of people in the green building community know you most through these somewhat public roles with nonprofits. 
but you, you, for many years, obviously, you've had really central roles uh, in a, in a huge array of projects, and I wonder if you could speak to some of what you feel are kind of the defining projects for you over the years professionally. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a little bit of a story, I think. But um, that first project that I did with the European Union um, to see if we could rebuild their cafe with the energy savings over the twenty years that was that was a, a pretty interesting project. It, was, it certainly set things in motion as a way of thinking that I hadn't put together before. Um, I worked on a lot of projects in the first few years where it was it was just understanding how to put systems together. I think that you have to be you have to be good at your job. And I did spend a good four or five years just kind of bedding in, being a, being a mechanical engineer, a junior mechanical engineer and learning how to do all the things that you need to, need to learn. Um, but I think that, you know, when you start to have a professional foundation and you start to do things is when the projects begin to become really interesting. So we were we did a project for the University of Texas at Houston Medical Center where we wanted to do absolutely everything for sustainability. That was in around about 97, 98. Mm. It was really difficult because nobody really knew what everything was, except that we <laughs> wanted to do all of it. Um, and so that, that was just a really good project for thinking about other other things, thinking about you know, uh, how intangibles and externalities feed into costs, thinking about materials, thinking about recycling, thinking about water management. I mean, it, everything was what we were trying to do on that on that project. And it was too early for a lot of the technology and definitely too early for the for the for the industry. It took us a long time to get out of schematic design, about three years, I think. <laughs> um, but then there were there were other projects that happened around about that that time um, I worked on the Gap headquarters in San Francisco where again it was about energy saving but it was energy saving in the American context rather than the European context that was that was new for me and then I did you know another three or four years of bedding in and doing projects and delivering work as the project manager rather than as the junior mechanical engineer and then when I moved to New York in the early 2000s I did a few things again I was doing big projects I worked on the High Museum of Art expansion and the Blanton Museum of Art so I did a lot of art work at that, at that time right. but I also started getting interesting in, interested and some of the sustainability commissions started changing it, it, it became much more about sustainability planning and strategy planning and we did the, the sustainability plan for the New York Power Authority which was a whole different kind of work it had stakeholder out, outreach other things that you don't encounter when you're part of a design team delivering a, a high-end building right and then you know that grew to become the the down to zero articles I wrote in 2006 which was a kind of how do you get to net zero in Houston on a tower block <laughs> didn't quite succeed it was a, it was a piece that I did for a, for a conference but the work that was done became foundational to all sorts of all sorts of other things that we did um, and then I and then you know the the I would say the sort of the big projects the ones that I've been working towards all my life were were things like Frick Chemistry at Princeton University yeah a, a huge lab building but a, a very energy efficient one um, the Michael Hopkins project right that's right yeah um, and then the U.S. Embassy in London with Kieran Timberlake which I think is one of the best examples of collaboration and then the Bloomberg Center at Cornell Tech with uh, Morphosis or the other the other one. So mm. I would say those are kind of my, my more, more recent marquee projects. I think that, you know, as I said, the, the things I've been training for all my life are probably those those three projects. It's amazing um, to hear those laid out in that context and hard for me, um, who met you as a, as a sort of iconic person in the profession to imagine you as a junior engineer um, trying to work it all out. But we all we all go through that. 
You've also done a lot of work embedding sustainability, I guess, into the design process. And I wonder if you could talk about the work you've done uh, within Arup uh, around building information modeling and other aspects of the sort of digital workflow that that professionals live with now, um, kind of trying to deliver more effective buildings. Yeah, so I, I would say I took a left turn in about 2017 and I started I've done a, a lot less work on projects in the last couple of years, but I'm hoping that won't last long. <laughs> and I've been thinking really hard about digital transformation and digital transformation Arab and the way in which digital working changes the way in which you do things within the construction industry. Um, and I think there are a few things that kind of come out of that overall process. One is you know, design. All of the design that we all do places a huge reliance on information flow. You know, the client says what they want and the architect interprets it and then they give some drawings to the engineer and the engineer interprets those and and then you create a design and you hand it over to the contractor who then parcels it up and gives it to the subcontractors who passes it to the commissioning agent and then back to the owner and there's sort of I don't know 10 steps of information flow on a good day right. between the, the, the people who started saying they want the building and the end users at, at the end and and this you know, getting design right actually requires that you get the information flow right all the way through. And it's one of the things that um, digital can really enable. I, I, I listened to a lecture in my early days on digital and the, the guy said, in design thinking, you have to put the big pieces and high risk items in place first. And I'm like, this guy could have been working in buildings for all of this time. You have to put the big pieces <laughs> and the high risk items in place first. You actually have to make some big decisions like where's my building going to be? What's it going to be? And what are my aspirations for the building? And, and sorting out those early things and doing it right is really important to getting it right in the in the later stages mm. and i think that the, the biggest part of that is what do you want to do and why do you want to do it i think that you know, we're, we're not always very good in the construction industry at identifying user requirements and persona development and i think we should be a little bit better at those things because i think that it would actually really inform both the quality of the architecture and the quality of the engineering that we that we do so i would say one of the things that you know that's a piece of digital workflow that i think we should absolutely put into into buildings but i think that the the point of that is this idea that you have to know where you're going and you have to know why you want to get there so the best sustainable designs um the morphosis project and the kieran timberlake project both of them they had really, really strong early goal setting and everybody was bought in. You know, it's the client knew, the architect knew, the engineering team knew, the reviewers knew, everybody knew that this was where we were heading and they were non-negotiable. They We wanted to achieve all of the things that we had on our list of goals to achieve, but they weren't necessarily one more important than the other. Of course, there's always scope and schedule, but those other things were as important as those early items. And I think that, you know, in this idea about when you want to, if you want to get sustainability into the design process and you want to think about how you do that, a lot of it is that early goal setting and then making sure that you buy into them. Because actually what tends to happen, as I'm sure you know, sometimes when you when you do things that are off a checklist or that look like they're sustainable, they become value engineering targets. Somebody says, that must be costing me money because it's a little bit better. <laughs> and sometimes it is. But I think there's this question about it. Is it cost, you know, there's, it's relatively straightforward to go from is it a capital piece of capital expenditure that is costing me more to is it the piece of capital expenditure that saves me in operating expenditure right. but it's not so easy to shift from capex plus opex to the actual value delivered to the users at the end of the project or to the client themselves and i think that this keeping the right questions going about value 
is really helped by setting goals right up front at the beginning of a project. And then all of that is enabled, again, by digital workflows. You know, what, what, is, what is the thing that digital do, will do for you? It will save stuff. It will put <laughs> information into a particular uh, place and it will allow you to track it, modify it, change it, version control it, so that you know that you're always dealing with the most recent information, the most recent aspiration, the most recent everything else. So yeah. these, this idea about keeping your eye on the prize and then working out what it is you need to do to get there is important both in the digital workflow and the design workflow and in embedding sustainable within within buildings. And it, it the three thing the, the the way of thinking is linked. It's it's too easy to try and tie a bow around it, but it 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 the ways of thinking are linked. Set the big stuff early. Make sure you put the goals correctly. Make sure you've understood what information you're really dealing with, and then make sure everybody can have access to the, that information and follow it through, so that there is a traceability from the point that the owner commissions to the point that the user occupies the building. That is unusual, I would say, in some of our some of our work. Definitely, and I, you know, I love the emphasis on the values that are embedded in the project and figuring out how to carry those through the process. Because those are the things that if you're lucky get said at the beginning and often they're not, <laughs> and then usually get forgotten <laughs> in right. the first round of drawings or whatever. Um, so figuring out how to allow the digital workflow to more carefully embed those values throughout the process um, feels very powerful to me. I was thinking of these as separate subjects, but the other thing I wanted to talk about with you is is the sort of notion of managing risk and and I think I, I you know the, the way that you were just describing that workflow um, it feels very related to me um, but obviously one of the primary challenges of sustainability has been that a lot of the sort of major societal impacts that we're all worried about um, human health impacts climate change are are externalized from their project in terms of the financing they're not accounted for in the the costs and benefits of an individual building typically but lately there's been a real effort uh, with the task force on climate related disclosures and other other work in the in the kind of finance sector um, to sort of embed this risk into decision making and I wonder if you could speak to how, Arup as an engineering and other services firm is is um, is helping clients with those issues and how those uh, sort of really global scale impacts maybe trickle down into individual projects or if they do. Yeah, so I think that, that, that there are sort of several issues all tied up in in here, right? If if you're building from new, then I think that there's a a very strong responsibility to set the design criteria to minimize some of the risks. So you need to be looking at future future facing um, rain, temperature, wind criteria, mm. um, because you actually need to design for them. If you've got a des building design life for 50 years or 100 years, and as we think more about embodied carbon, those design lives need to start getting longer. There's a there's a, a sort of very straightforward piece is what do I have to do to make this building safe for a longer period of time? And sometimes those tweaks are quite small. You might raise it up by a foot or two feet or five feet and and deal with how you get into it. You might choose to put equipment in different places. There are all sorts of things that you can do that don't necessarily cost you any money as long as you think about them in the early stages. But you can imagine coming and looking at them later and saying, oh, I've got to move everything that's in the basement onto the roof. Suddenly right. you get a a very different um, a very different story about it. So I think to relate this back to a, a project on the Bloomberg Center, 
we built it actually we did the design work right after sandy and it's mm. on roosevelt island and it's i don't know not very far above sea level and we did actually think about what can we put in the basement do we have to dry flood proof what level should the floor be at what does the code say what should the code say <clears throat> what would what would the right thing to do from a caution standpoint be because it became very real on mm. that on that project like you know we're, we're here we're building in the middle of a river that actually not so long ago was 10 feet higher than it currently is or normally is so i would say that, that that's the first bit when you're building something new you can you can plan for it i think that the, the piece that is more difficult is when you've got something that's already existing how do you then deal with it what are the what are the risks that are associated with buildings that are already in place that you didn't plan for it because you didn't look forward because it wasn't the right time and place or people were not thinking about it 50 years or 100 years or however long ago. And as we try and recycle more and more buildings and keep more and more buildings standing, you know, that, that's where that becomes important. So we have quite a lot of projects where we've been looking at, you know, what are the risks? If you, if you have a lot of distributed properties, it's what are, what are the risks associated with each of those properties? And, and largely the first cut can be, do they have earthquakes there? Is, are they next to the sea? Is rainwater increasing? Are they by a, a riverbed that might flood? You know, there's, there's sort of some very kind of situational stuff that you can see without knowing very much about the building. And then as you start to identify those areas where maybe there is a problem because something is happening around it, you can start saying, okay, so what's, how much deeper do I need to go with this risk assessment or review of the project? And then is there anything I can do about it? And then what's the most effective thing that I can do about it? So we have a, a, a fairly big area of work where we'll look at portfolios or individual buildings and just say, what are the things that could go wrong? And how do we solve those things that could go wrong? And what's the order of priority for doing them? So you start thinking about business continuity risk. You start thinking about whether there's a payback from insurance. You start thinking you know, from business continuity insurance. If you've taken steps to make sure that you're not disrupted, can you get a cut on your business continuity insurance? Is hmm. sort of question where the, the money comes back in we have a lot of those kinds of projects and we we worked on a the development of a of a rating system the ready rating system mm -hmm. which really looks at earthquake risk but it has been extended we have extended it to look at other kinds of kinds of right. flood risk this, if you've got a whole set of individual buildings then obviously you can do something about them and there are there are, are measures and metrics and we've done a lot of baseline thinking about what are those measures and metrics and how do you put them all put them all together um, I think that the the other related question here is you spoke at the beginning about thing, things become externalized. The way that we have been trying to address that internally is that we've started to think much more about the sustainable development goals as a whole. So the United Nations sustainable development goals were released in about 2015. And it's the idea of this is this is where we want to get to by 2030. And there are 17 of them, and some of them don't sound particularly like they're related to the built environment. You know, zero hunger doesn't sound like something you can solve by <laughs> building a lead building anywhere. Right? But um, but thinking about what the impacts of buildings are in communities and the way that the buildings are used, the way that the built environment as a whole is used, I think has been really helpful to broaden our thinking about, well, what is the real impact of this project? And I think that comes in two places. It comes when you're on a project already. It's like, can you have a conversation with the clients or the architects about unintended consequences that, you know, maybe it would be a very minor tweak to change something. Maybe it would be a major tweak, but maybe there's something worth doing if you're looking at it through this broad, broader lens of overall sustainable development. And then for new projects, 
you know, it's a question of, you know, what should this project be? Is this project the right thing to build at this time in the in the right place? I think this this future looking, imagining the future, trying to create a better world, shaping the built environment become as a whole becomes really important. Um, you know, we all learned in those those days of Sandy how interconnected everything was. You know, when the power didn't work, nothing else did either. Yeah, and I think you've seen that impact so many things since since then and and maybe we have still have a lot more work to do but a lot of the major regulatory changes that have happened since then I, I would say come directly out of that the urgency um, that that came from that moment I think we can't forget that yeah we've been as a profession sort of operating within the paradigm of of lead and you know, both for individual buildings and for planning and with the neighborhood development standard. And, and there are many other certification systems out there. They've been around for more than 20 years now. I, a lot of what made LEED special originally, I guess, is now, you know, embedded in energy codes and other regulations. And I, I, I wonder if you feel that, you know, has that model evolved enough over the years? And do what is the future in your eyes of systems like lead what are the what 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 role will they play in the sort of coming years yeah so i think i mean lead was enormously successful right it was supposed to transform the buildings industry and it did um right you know it moved us away from greenwash it moved us away from people saying oh i've put an economizer in my air handling unit i must be green and, <laughs> and people started saying actually that's required by code so what else did you do <laughs> um it it I th so it, it's done that. It's taken us away from greenwash. It also took us away from you know, the very narrow view of sustainability. Coming from a background in energy, uh, it, it was very easy to say, well, if you solve the energy problems, you've solved everything. And that, of course, right. is not the case. The water, the materials, the health of the inhabitants and the surrounding community are equally important, although maybe don't yield to the same kind of analysis. Um, and I think that that broadening view of sustainability is actually perhaps where these rating systems are likely to go so as we enter some some of this time that's more post-covid i think the healthfulness of buildings you know why mm -hmm. do you want to go to a place to be with people of course which yeah. people do you want to be with how close do you want to get and what kind of conditions would you like um to support your engagement is is a question that i think um we're going to need to ask and so I think we're going to see a bit more of this on the on the health side. I think we're not seeing it yet because I think people are not really in buildings. There's a there's a, a bit of hygiene theatre going on, lots of mm -hmm. silver tape and metal and you know, cleaning stuff surfaces, yeah, which works for some diseases, right? Yep. Maybe not the one we're currently dealing yep. with. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of this kind of showing that things can be clean, but I think we're going to see much more of you know what's your fresh air ventilation rate, what is your filtration rate, because those things actually. They're not just yeah. about um, disease spread. They're also about the quality of the indoor environment. And I think we're going to see more of that. If you're going to go to a place you want it to be as helpful as the place that you are not in, you know, you're not at home, you're, you're somewhere else. I think that things about um, the VOCs, the kinds of compounds that you get in, in office and commercial environments that you don't really get at home, I think we're going to see much more of those kinds of things coming up in industry. And then I think that the other piece that is going to become really important is, you know, we're in a we've been struggling with carbon for a long time because you can't see it, you can't feel it. And, and the changes in the weather and the climate are relatively slow. But carbon is becoming the thing about which we are yeah. all worried. And I think we're going to start seeing much. You know, we're going to see a, a continued emphasis on the operational 
carbon costs, but I think we're going to see much more an, em an emphasis on the embodied carbon costs, the, the scope three carbon emissions for organizations, the stuff they buy, the things they fly, the, you know, those, those kinds of things. I think we're also going to see more like the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosure, yeah. about the robustness of properties and investments to climate change scenarios. I think we have to remember, too, that these systems all have been evolving. I mean, when LEED started, climate change actually wasn't a top-tier issue. Most of the energy efficiency uh, impacts were considered to be things like air quality, <laughs> um, and that was later kind of embedded into the system. And I think a lot, and, and you know, a lot of these certification systems are going to be responding to all of the things that you've you've listed here. I'm, be, I'm really excited for the near future, actually, to see how all of this stuff is worked into um, everyone's everyone's workflow. So there are a lot of challenges in our industry, many of them. Um, supported by decades of inertia. And I think sometimes unlocking uh, uh, inertia requires courage from folks um, in, in some positions. Um, and I'm wondering if there are people out there uh, in your eyes that are sort of doing courageous stuff these days, uh, like who is inspiring you? Who is it that's, and, and what work is making you hopeful for for the future? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. There is inertia in the system and you know everybody likes to cut ribbons on things they don't necessarily like to mend things um and the mending is actually really really important so for me part of the the challenge in this is how do we make the best use of the stuff that we have already got mm. and how do we actually start making some really big and difficult steps as you say climate change it's been part of the conversation. We've argued about whether it should be part of the conversation since the Bush years, uh, the second Bush. Um, and we've, we've, you know, how do you support the COP or not from within the US? What does this mean? How do you mm. address it? How do you make sure that, you know, the money flows in the right way? Everybody wants to change it. Nobody wants to pay for it. So I think that the kinds of things that are actually courageous are some of the things that the state and local governments are doing and some of the things that the Biden administration is beginning to do. So I, I have a kind of mental model that says, you know, the, in, in the buildings industry, the consultants always sort of point to the codes and say the codes aren't strict enough. And the owners always point to the consultants and say, why didn't you push me harder? And the <laughs> government who write the codes tend to look at the owners and say, well, you didn't let us write stricter codes. So you end up with this kind of circle of, circle of blame. And I think that you can break that in many cases. I think you can break it from the consultant side by actually advocating more strongly and convening and getting together with the rest of the industry. So I think that all of the people who are doing that are, are somewhat somewhat inspiring. And there's a, a lot of people who are making declares actions at the moment that I think are courageous, I think that and and helpful, but I think there's a piece where we need to push those a little bit further. I think that some owners are actually also doing very courageous stuff and saying, you know, look at us, we've really done the right thing. But I think that actually a lot of the courage is happening in the, um, as I said, in the in the state and local governments. Mm. The, the progressive cities really are quite progressive and they're pushing really hard and nobody knows that it's really going to work. The, the things that are happening in New York around local law 97 and all of the, the sort of laws that led up to that, the local law 84, 85, 86, 87, you know, in previous years, all of that kind of story of how do you construct something that creates a good city for people to be in, but also supports 
climate change or anti-climate change goals, actually. I think Massachusetts have also done a really good job with some of those those pieces. It's, you know, the Massachusetts stretch code, the Boston stretch codes, mm-hmm. the Cambridge stretch codes will be you know, have, have pushed really hard. And, and of course, there's a lot of hand wringing about how expensive it is in, in all places. But actually, people are generally dealing with it. And then I think the other places, you know, Los Angeles is also mm. really beginning to kind of wrestle with what does it take for us to be a future looking plan. So I think a lot of a lot of the progressive cities, I would say, where I would look for that inspiration and and courage because they have to deal with the politics. And actually, as I said at the beginning, it's it's a technical challenge and the policy challenge yeah. and the politics challenge. And it's figuring out how to get those aligned and getting it done as quickly as we can. You know, we've, we've spent 20 years talking about it. It, it, yeah. it, it, it was already too late to act then. So it's definitely you know, <laughs> getting, getting, getting hotter. Well, and as you say, um, you know, politically with these issues, unlike some things that people in public positions might advocate for, um, there's no guarantee that that these policies are going to work um, and the impacts are sort of unassailable. Uh, so it is mm-hmm. very courageous to be proposing those things, um, knowing, you know, that you may not be lauded for them later. I think that's a great uh, moment to finish on. I really, really appreciate your time today, um, and I'm sure everyone listening has enjoyed this conversation very much. Fiona, thank you very, very much. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. All right. You take care.